everyone, and welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manuel Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Good to talk to you again, Dylan. I feel like we had our first episode for 2023, and we didn't really recognize that the new year had passed uh, at the beginning of the episode. So it's already February. <laughs> and it's been a lot of fun. I feel like we're making a lot Hell of cool yeah. connections in the field and throughout academia. And we're talking, having all these good conversations. And um, and it's been a ton of fun with you. I mean, it's just like, it's great. We hung out in, in D.C. a couple times, and that was a lot of fun. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, right back at you, buddy. It, it, it's been a lot of fun so far. And I think my favorite part of doing the pod is just to have such great conversations with scholars in our field and to get to know people and have the kind of nuanced, long form discussions about important topics that we're really craving and are just not conducive to like Twitter or even, you know, even a blog post there, there's like so many other layers that and we could jump to and you just can't do that unless you're having a conversation in this type of space. Yeah. And everybody's so, in addition to being so smart and having really interesting things to say, everyone's also so kind with their time yeah. and is so fun to hang out with. And we're having a great time while we're talking to people. I mean, scientists are just regular folks who are cool and funny and all the things that you would expect from anybody else in any kind of field of, of work in addition to just knowing a lot about the topic that they study. So it's been great getting to know of all those folks. Right on. And I also want to thank all our listeners for staying with us. And we hope to bring you some really interesting content. We're going to talk today about something that happened a couple of months ago at one of our flagship journals, Perspectives on Psychological Sciences. Yeah, so the event in question happened in December of last year. And we're recording, of course, in uh, early February. So for those of you who are not in academia yourselves, uh, there might be just a little bit more context than usual that we need to provide to frame this conversation. So that's going to just take a few minutes. So we're discussing a situation that involves a researcher named Dr. Stephen O. Roberts. Dr. Roberts uh, received his PhD in psychology from the University of Michigan in 2017 and is an associate professor in the psychology department at Stanford. And so he does research on the psychological roots of racism and how they can be dismantled. And despite being a relatively young scholar, he's one of those scholars who's accumulated many accolades. He is kind of got the uh, prestigious Association for Psychological Science 2021 Rising Star Award. He has the Sage Young Scholar Award, and uh, that's with uh, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. All of this is to say he's like a delicate, decorated scholar. Didn't he also just win an award like this past month, I think he got, I, I saw an SPSP email about it. the 2022 ISCON early career award was given to Stephen Roberts. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so then just full disclosure, we spoke with, with Dr. Roberts 
or Steven, as he asked us to, to call him during those interactions. I think the whole situation has been pretty difficult on him. And he decided against publishing our conversation. So Dylan and I are having a conversation, just the two of us. And we can we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some things that he told us. But I just wanted to say here at the beginning that if you're expecting Dr. Roberts to be on this conversation, unfortunately, he is not going to be. And and the fact that he doesn't feel comfortable jumping on the conversation is also a bit of the context here. Um, so let me give a rundown of the situation. So in 2020, Stephen, Dr. Roberts, he was the lead author on his most cited article to date that has accumulated over 400 citations in less than three years from when it's been published. The article is called Racial Inequality in Psychological Research, Trends of the Past and Recommendations for the Future, and was published in Perspectives on Psychological Science, or POPs. I'll generally refer to it as POPs, but it's Perspectives on Psychological Science. POPs just sounds so much cooler. Yeah, and it's going to go by so much quicker. Some people might call it Perspectives. We'll just say POPs for, for right, simplicity. Right. Um, it's the main perspectives journal for APS or the Association for Psychological Science, which is one of the bigger psychological associations in the country, in the world. In short, this paper asks a set of questions about psychological research on racial issues. What proportion of papers focus on race and who does that research, basically? As I said, the paper captured the attention of a lot of researchers, particularly given its extensive and rigorous review of the literature and its compelling conclusions, and maybe to some small extent because of the sociopolitical moment of 2020. And the paper has always been a bit of a cautionary tale, right? The paper is commonly cited to support the point that we need to diversify psychological science and that psychological research has systemic biases and contributes to the underrepresentation of non-white populations in academic research. However, the cautionary tale of this paper took on a whole new meaning towards the end of 2022 when Stephen and his paper were targeted for biased and, at the very least, unfair treatment. An editor at Pops named Dr. Fiedler was set on publishing a critique written by a Dr. Homel of Stevens' 2020 paper. Dr. Roberts was invited as a reviewer, but he couldn't review the paper because he was on sabbatical. And just to give you a sense of how bad this process ended up being, there were four other reviewers on this paper, but all of them seemingly agreed with Homel's critique of Roberts' paper. So on this topic, there were, was apparently no expert that could be brought on that you know, agreed with Robert's work or could provide a balance to the four reviewers that were reading the paper. In late 2022, Stephen released a public statement on the unfair treatment he received by the editor. He basically posted a preprint article online that showed the correspondence with the editor and the way that he had not been treated fairly. And as you read it, it's fairly clear that there is some unfair treatment. There was a public letter of support that was signed by a few thousand people. There was a counter letter that was signed by less people, but also a large number of people. And within a few days of Roberts posting his public letter, Dr. Fiedler resigned as editor after the APS board asked him to. So there's a lot more complexity to the situation, and we'll discuss a little bit more in greater detail, uh, Dylan and I. But for now, that's the context for our conversation. There was a 2020 paper that Pops published, that Dr. Roberts paper finding uh, evidence of racial inequality in psychological science publications. In 2022, an editor and four other scholars contributed a set of critical articles about uh, Dr. Roberts' 2020 paper. And then Dr. Roberts made a public statement 
about his experience at Pops that resulted in the firing of the editor. And so that's like, in a nutshell, what happened. So as we said, Dr. Roberts can't join us today, but we want to start off the conversation talking a little bit about the experience he had after releasing this preprint and discussing how he was treated at this journal. He, as a consequence of doing what he did, simply talking about his experience, um, was told he received emails that called him, and these are I, I don't even I'm not even going to say some of the words here, but told him low IQ, affirmative action and word um, accused him of ruining MLK's dream, have had his email used to create accounts at places called the chimp store and the gorilla and uh, yeah. and so on. So so he has actually had like as a consequence of this thing has had targeted attacks at his email with racist stuff. So like there is racism involved here, even at the interpersonal N word using level that is behind the scenes. He hasn't like talked about it. He's given me permission to talk about it uh, over email. But yeah, I, I think like it's crazy to think that like we went from an academic discourse um, to a series of like blog posts that Lee Jessam posted. Also, right wing media picked up this story. Here's the headline from the Washington Free Beacon, which their their subtitle is covering the enemies of freedom the way the mainstream media won't. So I suspect many of you don't read the Washington Free Beacon, <laughs> but that is their shtick. I don't think I've um, ever read it, says, it in my entire life. So right. I mean, I'm not big on right wing misinformation myself, so I, <laughs> I also don't frequent their website. But uh, the headline is prestigious psych journal cans editor for soliciting criticisms of black psychologist. And so it's just like it was it's it's that's the Washington Free Beacon. Quillette also had a write up about this. Signs of the Times is another outlet right wing outlet that has been talking about the situation as well. And so some people read about this situation on one of these right wing websites or Lee Jessam's blog or somewhere else where they're reading about this and went on to then harass a scholar based on what is being written up. So there is a pipeline here of, of right-wing misinformation or misrepresentation of the situation, which led to this person receiving actual racial epithets in their email. And that's just an important aspect of this situation that I was shocked, equally shocked and not surprised that that happened. It's, uh, it's awful and that should you know, it's 20, well, that happened 2022, it's 2023 now, you just, you'd hope that we're beyond that kind of thing happening anymore, but it still happens. Yeah, so that's where we wanted to start today's conversation. It's just on the human cost of this whole situation. I think what we want to do now is pivot to the scientific issues at play here. Um, so we want to talk about Stephen Roberts' paper in 2020 about racial inequality in psychological sciences. And we'll talk about the reasonable critiques that could be made about that paper and that approach to the questions it was asking. And then we're going to pivot also to the actual critiques that Homel and the other reviewers for his paper made here in 2022. And I'll just say in the beginning, like, we in general, do not think that those criticisms have a lot of merit. And so we'll, we'll get into that all later. So, Dylan, do you want to start us off on the 2020 paper? Yeah. So I, I, I think there there's a lot of important insights. And, you know, overall, I thought it was, you know, 
a, a paper that made a substantive contribution to the literature. And as you said, it's been cited a, a bunch of times. There are a lot of things that I felt like I was curious to learn more about and some points where I wasn't sure exactly what conclusion the evidence was supporting. And, you know, some of it, again, very reasonable and achievable. For example, the author suggests that we should be paying more attention to demographic diversity of our samples. And I think you had noted in a different context, Manny, this seems obviously good because as scientists, we should want to get the most representative samples we possibly can. If we're only studying white people, that strikes me as very problematic from a racial perspective, but also just bad science. And there's more recommendations that they give. But the main focus, I think, was to look specifically at papers that highlighted race. And they the researchers basically gathered data on papers that were published across a span of several decades and looked to see whether race was mentioned in the title or the abstract of the paper. And they looked specifically at papers that were published in some of the top journals in our fields. So for example, they reported that 7% of articles in two of the more prestigious journals in our field, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. And then they also did Cognition, Cognitive Psychology, Child Development, Developmental Psychology. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're highlighting articles that specifically mention race in either the title or the abstract. And the, you know, there, there's a couple of ways to interpret these findings. One is this, just that there's a low number of papers that mention race at the outset of the paper, although they may or may not go more into detail in the method section describing the nature of sample demographics. Or it could be that this is the percentage of papers whose primary research concerns race. So that was something that, you know, I was definitely curious to learn more about. But at any rate, if we're just looking at the percentage of articles that highlight race at the outset, it's low. And I think one of the things that we could say about this is to say, all right, let's let's think more about the sample characteristics and research questions we're asking. And one of the questions that I had um, was, you know, what do you think a good target number for that should be, um, you know, should it be like, and maybe this is a good question for us, Manny, you, maybe you've, you know, given this some thought, like in our ideal world, especially given that we study lots of stuff ranging from things like romantic love and attraction to, you know, environmental behaviors like recycling, like what would the ideal percentage be for articles that highlight race? Yeah. So let me just make sure everybody's on the same page about what the paper is doing. So the paper is looking at all of the publications in these journals and then asking what percentage of them deals with the topic of race. Um, and your question is, what should the percentage of those papers right. be? In my mind, there is a task of simply describing and that that descriptive process is in and of itself valuable, right? So even if we don't have a goal of how many papers should deal with race, the idea that we have documented that and have a better understanding and grasp of that is probably important. I think like to actually answer your question, though, we could think about like how much does race pattern important outcomes in the world, right? So right now we know, for example, that there's a wealth disparity between white and black Americans such that black households have about 10% the wealth 
of white households. And we're talking about wealth. Like this is the very thing that you use to buy homes and to move across the country to a better city that that might have better opportunities, that helps you pay for your kids to go to college. Think of all the things that are linked to your capacity to to raise and maintain wealth. So are personality differences like that? Is there is there a personality difference such that people who are high in being introverts versus being high in extroversion associated with a 90% decrease in their wealth? Probably not. So like in terms of what are some of the most important things that are really influencing the way that our, our society functions, race is very high up there in the United States in particular. And I, I can't, I don't know the numbers on wealth disparities uh, across racial groups in a bunch of other countries, but I suspect it's not that it's, it's going to be similar. So um, it strikes me as something that we we really should be thinking about and paying attention to because it's so influential. Yeah. I remember you said one of the reasons why we care about race is because race tracks with a lot of the other stuff that we care about and something like eye color maybe does not. And something like handedness maybe does not. So yeah, the reason we're studying race is because there are racial gaps and we want to address and eliminate them if, if possible. But, but my question remains like, Okay, so there's a certain percentage of papers that highlight race. Like, what would be a good number? And and they don't, to be fair, like, they don't say that there is, they don't make a claim about what that number should be. And they leave it to the the reader to decide for themselves. Like, we should actually just talk about those percentages. So so what are the proportions of publications that deal with race? Right. So I, I think when, when I had said uh, 7% in social psychology, I think that was for the most recent decade in their analysis. So it was it was actually lower than that. And in cognitive psychology, it's extremely low. It's the lowest of the three subfields. Yeah, uh, fewer than 1% of publications highlight race and cognitive psychology. That's 14 out of 3,689 uh, publications. This is from uh, the years 1970 to 2010. Um, and then it's 8% in developmental psychology, and it's 5% in social psychology. So yeah, given that it's just such a massive thing, these do seem relatively low. Granted, that is a like subjective judgment. And, you know, I have a dog in this fight, I guess, because I'm an inequality researcher myself. Um, so like the papers that I write are going to deal with race or SES, one of those two. And so I'm not completely unbiased. Again, when we're talking about something that influences people's different subgroups to have 10% the wealth of another subgroup, that, that's massive. Like I, I, I just challenge any cognitive psychology researcher or developmental researcher or social psychologist to just point at a, a, a handful of other things that have that kind of influence on people's life outcomes and that are also only studied 5% of the time. You know, overall, I guess they're pointing to this and they're saying we need more scientific productivity to address and answer questions about race. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, a, you you could make that claim even without the numbers. Like, that this is this is kind of where I would want to know like exactly what this information buys us because you could just say listen as researchers who care about things like systemic bias and uh, inequality we have lots of questions about how race tracks with that and we just want to know what's mm-hmm. going on and more information is good yeah and and I think this is a call to action for a lot of people like a lot of people look at this number these numbers and say how could it be that something that's so influential and important 
we're only dedicating 5% of our papers to try to understand in social psychology. Right. That makes sense. They noted, among other things, that the the authorship for papers that highlight race has changed over time, such that there are more non-white authors of these papers over time and fewer white authors. So authors of color, as a proportion of all these papers, that has gone up and the percentage of uh, white authors has gone down. It's still a majority of papers that are written by white authors, but the papers are disproportionately... Well, no, I, I strike that. A majority of the papers that highlight race are written by white authors. And I'm curious, Benny, what, how, how, do you, how do you think about that? In fact, it's disproportionate in the opposite yes, direction, right? Yes. So like the population, it, it, just, just so the audience knows, the U.S. is about 60% white non-Hispanic, and then it's about 13% black. And so if we go strictly off of percentages of the population, 60-40, 60% white, that actually matches, but 40% is more. So um, I think what we're seeing in these figures, research is me-search, right? <laughs> so black people, when they become scholars, uh, uh, psychological researchers, they are more likely to study people from their communities. They might also be geographically located in places that have greater access to people that are part of the black community because maybe they're a researcher in a historically black university. Maybe they're a researcher in a region of the country that the, the South or something that has uh, more black folks in it. So I think that's that's part of what we're seeing here. And I just wanted the audience to be clear. It's not that 40% of psychological research in general is right. done by black people in social psychology. These are specific to studies that focus on race. Right. Right. So uh, you still see a majority white people. It's still a majority of white people who are doing research on race, even in social psychology, even in 2010. But it's not uh, proportionate to the population. Another thing that they point out in the paper is about editors and the proportion of editors that are either white or black. So figure two of their paper kind of demonstrates that there is this like disproportionality in terms of who are the editors and chiefs at these big journals in these across these different fields. Another standout here is cognitive psychology, who has zero it, it, it's hard to see. It, it might be 1% or something like that. It's not registering on the figure. Very, very small, yeah. Um, so it seems like of the 3,667 publications, a negligible amount of them had a black editor-in-chief behind them. In developmental psychology, it looks like they're probably meeting population parity, where they're somewhere around 13% of the 10,000 articles in the data set. 13% of them or around that are editors of, of chief of color. And this is also of color, right? So this would pro presumably include other racial yeah. groups, non-white racial groups that are East Asian, South Asian, indigenous, Native American, Middle Eastern, et cetera. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's even like, who? I'm not exactly sure how many of those people that 13% are actually black. So we should, it's probably not proportionate to the population, I guess is the point that I'm making. And then for social psychology, it's... I don't know, 5%, something like that. Um, so again, the editor of chief position is the one where that, that's like a very high power, high uh, status role in an academic journal. And clearly we haven't reached parity there. Like sure, sure, we do have a lot of researchers who are doing this research for the reasons that we kind of talked about maybe, but 
But when it comes to who's making the decisions, who's making, and, and this is particularly in, interesting in light of the situation at Pops, where it was a, not the editor-in-chief, but it was an editor who was making these kinds of decisions that really were working against a, a non-white scholar. You kind of see that inequality built in here when you have almost no editors-in-chief for an entire uh, field of science that presumably tries to make claims about human nature when all of them are just white sure. folks. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I just quick non sequitur, there's an article that uh, we'll put in the show notes basically about demographic representation in academia mm -hmm. that shows a little bit more specifically what the numbers are. And so, yeah, this, this what, what you're describing in the in this paper is kind of more evidence of that. Basically, just not having as many as we would hope to see in terms of uh, editors in chief of color. So, right. Yeah. And, and researchers talk about something called the so-called leaky pipeline, quote unquote, which basically is that like yeah. as you move up the status hierarchy, you know, you start at the bottom as an undergrad. And you work your way up to being editors in chiefs at the most prestigious journals and to being the tenured professors at the highest prestige uh, institutions in the country. And every step along the way, we lose uh, scholars of color at each level. Um, I specifically mean underrepresented minority scholars of color. So like as as you might many people might know, people who come from certain Asian backgrounds, not all, but but certain Asian countries are represented well in academia and overrepresented to their proportion of the population. But when you look uh, at black scholars, like they lose representation every step along the way. And also, even amongst like those uh, Asian American scholars, uh, you do find like at the highest levels, it is still white men who are kind of dominating the field of the most high status groups. And I think I've seen research on that for Asian Americans as well. Like even there, though they're overrepresented at graduate school and maybe even among tenured professor, if you look at the most prestigious institutions, they tend not to be Asian Americans at the same rates. Manny, you, you had touched on this a little bit, this idea of research and me-search, the notion that people study things that are consistent with their lived experiences. I remember I first encountered this idea when I was in grad school and we heard a talk at a colloquium where uh, the researcher was describing how her uh, spouse was dealing with a chronic illness, and so she decided that she was going to study how couples cope together with chronic illnesses. And she specifically used that phrase, me-search. And I thought, what a great way to you know, describe this. And so this brings us to our uh, ne the next thing we wanted to talk about here, which is one of the recommendations from the article about positionality statements. And so the authors say... You basically, that if if relevant to the content of the research, that the author should disclose parts of their identities. So they give this example that I think is worth discussing. They say, if, for instance, scholars are drawing conclusions about Asian Americans, yet the author list consists exclusively of white Americans, that could be made clear. And if authors detail their samples' racial identities, they could just as well detail their own racial identities. Um, so I think this is one of those things where I'm very curious to learn more about the goals for positionality and exactly what we should do with this information. So, and, and in fact, you know, I 
would have loved the opportunity to discuss this more with the authors of this paper. Um, I, I guess I'm just not sure what we do with that. Like, okay, let's say I'm an editor or a reviewer and I come across a paper written by two white authors and the sample is like 90% Asian Americans. What exactly do I do with that? Do I downgrade the paper in my review? Do do we deny its publication? Do we, you know, add a an asterisk next to it like when it when it does get published? What what exactly is the process here in terms of evaluating that piece of of research? Yeah, I'm not I I don't think that they would ask anyone to downgrade the research. I think it's it's all just to in the uh attempt to be more descriptive, right? Like, why do we ask our participants what their race is? They, they make an analogy to to that in the paper. They say that right. we ask all of our participants to reveal what their identity is. And we think that our knowledge of that, of their identity group, will help us understand the data. And so why would we not assume that understanding the identities of the people who are writing the paper could influence the way that they wrote it, what they said, how they conceived of the research questions that they're asking. I, I, I don't know. That makes sense to me as a descriptive thing. Right. So I think to your point, if all we want is to just describe in with as much information as possible so that, you know, we have a full understanding of who writes papers and what they're writing about. Fine. I'm good with that. I guess the I, I don't I don't necessarily see in the in this article what they recommend we do with that information, which is why I was asking. So they're they're not they're definitely not suggesting that we like reject papers from journals just because of the race of the author. They're they're a hundred percent not saying that. I would like to know what they are recommending though. And if they if they're just recommending this for the sake of a kind of for the metadata. Great. It could be and, that. It's but, also but transparency. If, if there's, so okay. So say more. So what what do you think about the transparency here? Yeah. So like we know that identity. The reason why researchers ask about their participants is because no, we know that identity shapes the way you see the world. That's just a thing that's true about racial and SES and gender identity and and your sexual orientation. Ideally, a, a positionality statement is not simply a list of your identities, but it's also a relevant framing of your identity and where you're coming from and maybe even something about you that articulates why you wanted to study this topic. Like that's an interesting thing that can help me understand this paper in the context of you as a person who wrote it, right? People are, you know, as much as we try to pretend that people are perfectly objective, you know, scientific robots when they write scientific papers, that's just not how any of this works. Like instead people are embedded in social contexts they live in certain regions of the country, they have certain histories, and they write things that emerge from that history and from that context. And if you know a little bit more about the history and context that a person's coming from, that adds to the transparency of the article, understanding where it's coming from. It's similar to like, if I read a, a journalist, and they write like, what seems to be an even handed article, but then I, I realize that actually that person is a political operative for one or the other parties, then I have a better sense of where they're coming from on that article. And it just shapes the way that I'm going to perceive that article. It's a little more honest too, right? It's like, I, I am, I do have my biases. I've also tried to write an article that's objective as possible about the situation, but you should recognize that maybe I could have asked different questions. 
And I might have if I wasn't a political operative for the other t- the other side of the political aisle. Yeah, I, I want to double click on what you just said, because I think you're making a fantastic argument for viewpoint diversity. This this is this is, I think, yeah. you know, what one of the threads in this whole story is the need for viewpoint diversity. Yeah. And how I, I would I would characterize this, you know, whole scandal at perspectives uh, or pops as a failure of viewpoint diversity. And I think, you know, what you're describing is interesting. I, I could imagine it, though, in a way, skewing how we evaluate the quality of research or accept the conclusions if we have a schema of who is writing the article or who is publishing the research. I think that science and the processes that we use, the methods, the stats, the experiments, all of that should be evaluated on its own merit because that is kind of the cornerstone of what science is. So if I conduct a study and I use methods that are reproducible, anyone of any race or background should be able to repeat that experiment and get the same results. That being said, if we have general diversity in the field, different people with different viewpoints will ask different questions and they will design different kinds of studies and have different theories and hypotheses. And those are very, very important for the field. Again, argument for viewpoint diversity in science. Uh, but I, I, I do think there's a difference there with regards to our practice. Yeah, to be sure. And I agree with you that like you, you basically evaluate scientific papers on their merits. And I agree with that. I think, again, it's it's not... I don't think positionality statements, anybody advocating for them thinks that you should use them to dismiss or accept claims that are made in a scientific paper as more true or less true. That's all about methods. And so I think it's really just there to help clarify where the person's coming from. What are their possible blind spots? Not not like is is the experiment valid or correct? It's more what questions didn't they maybe consider or not ask? because of the experience that they have. It's more descriptive. So l- let me let me ask this, because they suggest that we do this for race, but they also suggest that we could do this for other things. And I'm curious how far you think this should extend. For example, if researchers are trying to publish a paper about those who have you know, schizophrenia or autism, should they disclose if they have a mental illness or if they're neurotypical? If I publish a paper on, like I'm actually in the process now of trying to publish a paper on the psychology of infidelity in romantic relationships, should I disclose whether I have cheated on my spouse or if if I have been cheated on? Like, is that a relevant piece of information in, in, in the sense that you're describing with regards to blind spots and the kinds of questions we're asking? I think people might balk and I'm not sure, I, I'm sure this is not your intent, but I think people will balk at like the idea of race and gender and class being analogous to having or not having a disability or having or not having a psychological illness or something. No, but it does, it does influence the research question, right? If, if people's personal experiences, like, like you're saying, that, that the basic logic I think does apply. I mean, I know people personally who have been cheated on and said that that motivated them to study infidelity. I'm not sure that those are aspects of an identity. Like, are you do you identify as a person who has been cheated on? I guess you might. I'm so glad you asked that. Like, I I think that's really what this is about. This is about social identity. That's 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 exactly right. So what what makes identity 
a different thing than other aspects of a person's lived experience that may influence the types of research questions they ask or the types of experiments they run. Yeah. So I think it, it comes down to the thing we were talking about earlier. Is it true that being cheated on or not is associated with these very different life outcomes, the way that race is or gender is? I'm, I'm not sure that that is the case. Are you getting a very different experience in your life because of that? The other approach is I'm kind of open to somebody saying like in a positionality mm. statement that they've been cheated on. If the journal wants that and the journal can talk about okay. that and they're a researcher who studies infidelity. I think that's interesting color that adds to the, the paper and helps me like understand where the researcher is coming from. I don't have a big problem with that. I also don't have a big problem with somebody saying I've never struggled with any mental illness, but my career is built around investigating mental illness. That's interesting. Right. In terms of like it being mandatory or whatever, I can tell that someone's black by just like talking to them, looking at them. Most people will divulge that information pretty rapidly. Um, they may not want to divulge private health information about who is a yeah. third degree relative of theirs that has a disorder yeah. uh, or whether they've been cheated on. I think that like now we're getting into yeah. really private things that people don't want to reveal. And I don't think yeah, the, the yeah. statement, the positionality statement is trying to force people into a position where they have to reveal information they don't want that they otherwise wouldn't share. You've made several great points that I just want to double click on. Yeah. So on the one hand, yes, nobody's forcing anyone to reveal personal things about them that uh, they, they might not feel comfortable sharing. And I actually agree with you that, you know, the more openness, the more authenticity we have as researchers, like that's a good thing. And yeah. if somebody wants to describe a bit about their experience of what motivated them to do the research, which a lot of people do even without a positionality statement, but just, you know, like I've done that in interviews and others I know have done that. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And so, and the paper does explicitly say what they hope that their recommendation would do. And it says the, the quote is this recommendation may encourage researchers to conduct their research collaboratively with diverse scientists and engage in multi-lab collaborations. And right. then they have a few sites and I haven't yeah. looked at those sites, but I could see how if you have an expectation of a positionality statement, then all of a sudden you're something that had been implicit in the research process. Like whoever ends up as an author just ends up on an author list. I don't know. It doesn't it's not nobody's tracking it. doesn't matter. We don't have to talk about it. But once you turn that implicit process into an explicit process where we're going to have to talk about who we are and why we study what we study, then you might feel some kind of motivation to be like, huh, if we're going to study topic X, maybe we should have somebody who's part of the group that's related to topic X. That way we can, yeah. we can have like that perspective in the conversation and that will color the way we ask the questions and color the way we write the paper. Yeah. And you can see something similar happening in our sister fields in uh, uh, clinical psychology, for example, researchers will try to make an effort to incorporate the views of, you know, people who are experiencing uh, various kinds of mental illnesses in their research design process and I think that is kind of similar to mm -hmm. what they're suggesting is just to uh, make space for make more space for the people who you're doing research about to be part of the research process. I would have liked to see more of that made explicit and fleshed out in their recommendation. That basically concludes our thoughts on the 2020 paper. It has flaws like any other research paper has. It's not above criticism from 
anybody, we can have a reasonable conversation about how it could have been improved, what it says and doesn't say about scientific research and psychology. All of that's for the good. That's all part of normal scientific discourse and nothing's wrong with that. What wasn't great was the way that Pops, the journal, tried to address this paper and tried to formulate this strange criticism of not just that 2020 paper, but people who are talking about race in psychology and trying to make it seem like there's this woke problem or whatever. And we'll talk more about those criticisms. It became like a very strange interaction with basically five scholars who all agreed with each other, just teaming up against this black scholar in the field who was writing about racial inequality in academia. And so we'll get into that a little bit. So the paper was subject to a lot of criticism uh, by Dr. Homel, which is under the editorial oversight of Dr. Fiedler. And so Homel is just a scholar who had a problem with the 2020 paper that we just talked about. And then he wrote a critical piece about it. Dr. Fiedler apparently loved that critical piece. He sought Stephen Roberts' response, but then Stephen Roberts was on sabbatical. He didn't respond to it. And so he sought the responses from three other scholars, Lee Jessam, Keith Stanovich, and Wolfgang Strobe. Those three scholars, in addition to the original writer Homel and the editor Fiedler, all kind of seem to agree on the substance of this critique of this 2020 paper. So this is months later after Dr. Roberts is back from sabbatical, but he ends up being asked to provide a commentary on Homel's paper. He was originally asked to review it, but then after it was written and reviewed, he was offered an opportunity to comment on it. He was told that the commentary would not be peer-reviewed, but Fiedler ended up sending Dr. Robert's paper to Homel, the original writer of the critique against him. And Homel then sends him a list of changes that he wants Dr. Roberts to implement. Lee Jessam, Stanovich, and Strobe, they're all publishing their commentaries without peer review. Right, right. But now Stephen Roberts has to not only go up against five other scholars, ultimately, if you include the editor, but... Um, He has to do so while being edited by one of the very people who's unfairly criticizing him. So it's just like this ridiculously stacked like situation against Stephen Roberts. So it's just a wild ride, all of which Roberts documents in this preprint that kicks off this whole thing that's in the show notes. Reading through the preprint, it's pretty clear that Roberts was treated unfairly. Even people who I perceive as fairly sympathetic to Fiedler, Homel, Jessam's mission to critique Roberts' original 2020 paper, they all seem to agree also that Roberts was treated unfairly in this process. Yeah, I mean, I think we can say that, you know, I guess this is one of our our hottest takes of 2023 (laughs) so far. Yeah, I will say it. I think I think Stephen Roberts was mistreated during this process. We can talk about the nuts and bolts of this, because in thinking about, for example, Fiedler's decision to invite peer reviewers to publish their reviews as separate commentaries like that by itself is not necessarily a huge problem. It's not unheard of. It's rare in publishing, mm-hmm. but all put together, like you said, it was he stacked the deck against Roberts and had this very bizarre back and forth over the process. And it I mean, I I would be really pissed off if I was yeah. in Stephen Roberts' shoes. And the the other thing to note 
is that as I as we talked about before, the importance of viewpoint diversity, like this was a failure of viewpoint diversity. Right. If Fiedler could have, I think, fairly easily found an array of reviewers who are, you know, going to review Hamel's work and maybe even chime in with their own critiques of the original Roberts paper, like you can find a diversity of responses there. That shouldn't be that hard. And he couldn't or didn't want to. Like, we don't really know, I guess, what the what the overall intentions was. I mean, this this may have been totally intentional, but if it were there are me, so many scholars. Like, yeah. There, sorry, that go he on. could have contacted. There are just so many people he could have contacted, like to your literally point, hundreds or thousands of them. <laughs> yes. And, and the people he did contact, like many of them are not in this area of studying racial inequality in academia like they, that's not their area of research so they're being brought in presumably like we don't know presumably because they all agree with Hillel. like I, I i just can't it's hard to conceive of like what their expertise were on the topic given their cvs and you know uh, although this wasn't part of the process uh we and i think i think you found this actually this response paper written by another scholar chris martin submitted to yeah. meta psychology and it looks like uh martin did receive some feedback and in, in the acknowledgments we have um Stephen o roberts himself so um you know I, all this is to say like you can get good quality responses and and reviews that are critiquing the literature it doesn't have to be the way that fiedler did it the way that fiedler did it was i think uh, just poorly done so we can talk a little bit more about the critiques that were laid out so first of all homel's initial critique of the 2020 paper was called dealing with diversity in psychology science or ideology question mark so to start with it's an interesting way to talk about the issues to dichotomize um, science from ideology particularly given just the long history of ideology in scientific research psychological research was the one of the breeding grounds of racialist uh, pseudoscience, right? So like the idea that black people are inherently inferior to white people, a lot of that was perpetrated by psychological scholars for many generations. And so it's just kind of an interesting thing to now apply that to the very people who are still trying to remedy those problems, right? Stephen Roberts is in a tradition of scientists who have tried to use psychology to remedy and fix racial inequality that had historically been caused by psychology. And so on the one hand, psychology created a problem through its mixture of science and ideology. And now a, an ideology of equality, an ideology of fairness, an ideology of equality between the two racial groups has emerged. And those people inspired by an ideology of fairness and equality and inclusion and, and all of the things that are actually good are trying to right the wrongs of the historical past to some extent. And now these people, this collection of white, uh, five white scholars say, actually, now you're getting ideology all up in my science. Oh, it's so like the, the, the irony of it is, is incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes people use the word ideology just to refer to worldviews they don't like. And I, I, ideology can mean right. many things. And in this case, I agree with you that uh, it, it, it is weird to see this in the Hamel paper and some of the other papers. Like, I, 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 I did not get the sense that there was a, like, political agenda 
in the Roberts paper, just reading it. Like you said, you know, no paper's perfect. There's things we can critique and quibble with, but I agree with your assessment there. Well, let, let me, I, I actually think there is a political agenda. The, the, the oh, political agenda okay. is, is to address racial inequality. The thing is, I think that's good. Like, come out and say, I think the agenda to correct racial inequality in academia is bad. Like, come out and say, because the thing that they're not saying and they're leaving implicit is that they have their own ideological agenda to oppose the ideological agenda of those of us who have a problem with racial inequality and want to address it in science and, and using science. That's interesting. There is an ideology of equity, of of inclusion, of equality between racial groups, of using the tools of science to try to solve these problems. That is an ideological position. It well, just so yeah. happens to be a moral and good one, too. So, yeah, I guess I guess I would posit that valuing equality and fairness is more of a, a moral virtue or ethical goal rather than an ideology that's in opposition to a different ideology. I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think, you know, I think the vast majority of people, probably including the folks we're talking about here, are in agreement that equality is good. I'm not sure that they're opposing that. Well, I think they're saying you shouldn't be fighting that. Go fight that battle in the political realm. Don't talk about it in science. Is that is that what Hamel is saying? Well, I mean, that's what's interesting about contrasting these two things, right, about saying science or ideology. And what Stephen Roberts does in his response to this, he says science and ideology. It is and it always has been. Ideology has always been mixed in with our science and we're never going to fully extract it from science. Science, human beings are ideological in, by their very nature. They're shaped by the ideology of the culture that they happen to be in. And they're going to just contaminate everything that they do, whether it's science or art or politics or anything else. Economics is going to get tied up in the ideology that you hold. And that's just how it is. What we need to do is be is be as honest and open about our different identities that contribute to different viewpoints that we might have and have viewpoint diversity, like all of the things, the solutions to the problem is not to pretend that there is no problem. And I feel like that's that's kind of one of the major errors that right. the Hommel critique is doing. So there, there I agree with you in not just the Hommel critique, but some of the others that yeah. they may be downplaying the extent to which racism is a big problem. I, I think I, I agree with you there. Yeah, let's talk about how they downplay that. So they're one of the things that they do is like say, actually, it's all base rates. I think we've addressed the 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 base rates argument a little bit. We've identified how like in some ways it's uh, the amount of researchers that are involved in racial disparities or in racial issues in psychological science has more black folks in it than the base rates would suggest that they should have. Again, this was a point made by Dr. Chris Martin a long time ago, and it's a good point. And I think it's fine to like talk about how the, any differences that there might be in the number of papers that are out there could be related to population sizes as well. So it's not all just like, it's not that it's all racism. It could just be like there's differences in population sizes and that should be taken into account whenever you're making, when you're like thinking about these issues. I think that that's a valid point. In the Hummel paper, he, he talks about base rates, but he doesn't, in my opinion, really do a fair 
job of it in part because he says, oh, look, you know, you have an ex- you have an expected ratio of 81% of white editors and then you have the actual number that Roberts reports, which is 87%. And he just kind of waves that off and says, you know, that's, that's not, a, that's not a problem. So again, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that this is necessarily reflecting an ideology that says we like inequality, but we, it's, it's, it's more like just downplaying the significance of the issue. To be clear, I wasn't saying that they say we like inequality. I'm saying their ideological position is trying to fix racial inequality is an ideological thing and we don't want anything to do with it. But that is in and of itself an ideological position to take. Right. For you to say we can't talk about that, that is an ideological position. And they're just not reckoning with the idea that they also have an ideological dog in this fight. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it's just like maddening that 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 like they're they're. They're trying to use the baton of like, you're being ideological, but they're do- in so doing, they're being ideological themselves. Yeah, I think some people have this view that science is like either above ideology or immune to it. And, and it, that just may not be very realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really like the point you made just now that he's like, the expected ratio should be 81%, but then it's, it's actually 87%. And then the additional 6%, is just like he just ignores it it's just like it doesn't exist those numbers are so close to each other that who cares i also feel like he's collapsing across the different fields of study and developmental psychology is doing all of that work like if it was just cognitive psychology it would be 99 percent. and so I i think that's just like kind of silly that he's doing that it's just very sloppy like the whole base rates conversation as i said chris Martin did a pretty good paper on this topic. It is respectable, good science. Here, it's it's sloppy. And so yeah. I, 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 while I think the base rate thing is interesting, I don't think they deliver the argument very well yeah. to the point that you made earlier. I agree. Another point he makes is what he calls blindness to multidimensional d- nature of diversity. And this is a point that is hit by basically, I think like all of the people who are involved here. Yeah. Jessam, Sanovich, yeah. uh, Homel. All of them kind of make this point in different ways in their different papers, which is the other like silly thing about that. Like, just write one paper together, y'all. If you're all just going to say the same thing, like, don't make us read the same points made four different times across four different papers. Jeez. So, yeah, let's 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 flesh that out They're They're basically trying to say that there's lots of different ways in which people can be diverse and races one of many including things like sexual orientation religion politics etc but right it's such a i i'm so pissed off when i read this because <laughs> on the one hand i agree that all of these things matter a lot and we could and should think about diversity in these multidimensional ways the Roberts paper said that explicitly at more than once in the paper. They literally said, we are focusing on race, but the things that we're saying also apply to other variables. It's literally written several, at, at least twice I saw it in the paper. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I, d- I do think, you know, there there is a good way to make this critique. You could say, okay, well, if, you know, why why is race more important than religion? Like maybe religious prejudice is just as big of a problem. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the numbers. You know, let's let's look at, you know, should, let's take that seriously. But that's not what they're saying. They're just saying there's a myriad of ways, and therefore focusing on race is bad. 
that's really like you said sloppy like that's the only yeah the only word that i could use the most charitable word i could use to describe it it's sloppy i think it is charitable and there's also this weird swapping of what roberts does in his 2020 paper and and or it's like a straw manning of his argument he says we're focused on race on this paper and they interpret it as the only thing that matters is race and like Nobody makes that argument. Nobody has made that argument. Certainly, Stephen Roberts did not make that argument. He's just saying yeah, we're focused on this one issue. Yeah. So it's just it's absurd. It, it's again a thing that they spend. He spends like a, th- a thousand words making this bad point, and a lot of the other papers do the same thing. The next one is called blindness to agency. The argument is basically that if there is a gap. It could be that black folks are just less interested in psychology. And of course, they have no evidence for that. There, there's, right. uh, there, there's, there are other studies, like you mentioned, the audit studies where people, you know, the, the, the researchers will send out emails or resumes and the ones with um, black names are less likely to get replies. Like there, there's, there's evidence in favor of the, racial discrimination hypothesis, it would be great. Like, I would love to see a paper that makes this argument with actual evidence. Like, okay, show me one study, one study that says we find that black Americans are less interested in psychological science than white Americans. Like, show me one paper that says that. They don't have it. And that's what's so infuriating. They might actually show the opposite. This is a type of research that is conducive to understanding the various problems that have emerged along along racial lines. And we know that scholars of color are motivated by helping their communities, by figuring out these things. The whole me search is research thing that we were talking about earlier, like that is a motivating thing. And, and so you probably are going to find the opposite that these fields of study, sociology, psychology, ones that like help people understand social problems within the society are probably extra interesting to people who come from minoritized groups is what I would. That's my hypothesis. Could be. They have no evidence to the contrary, but they build this like argument around, well, maybe just black folks don't want to be social psychologists or psychologists in general. And I just don't know that that's the case. There's this really galling statement, and I'm just going to read this. Yeah, so Homel makes this really interesting acknowledgement. He says, individuals growing up under special conditions, such as members of a sizable minority in the U.S. that were discriminated by law until the mid-1960s, develop different needs and interests than studying task switching or the automaticity of flanker processing in artificial laboratory experiments. Uh... Even if that were the case, this would neither constitute a societal problem, nor would it need to be resolved. And I just think that is shocking. Like for him to say this group was was discriminated to hell to the point where I don't think they're interested in science. And then he goes on in the very next sentence to say that's not a societal problem and it doesn't need to be resolved. And I'm just like. That is the most like bald statement I've ever heard in a scientific paper. Like, I don't know. I know that like, yeah, it's, it's it, like subjective whether there's racism going on here. But like for him to say that this problem is, is happening and I don't think we need to solve it. It's not a societal problem, actually. I just don't I, I can see the like legitimate read of racism into that statement. And the, the thing is, again, like this is my optimistic side. You can make 
a much better version of this argument in which people are free to do what they want in life. And in the absence of any bias or discrimination, it may very well be the case that people in some groups prefer to do other things that, you know, people in different groups. Right. That's OK, but that's not necessarily what's happening here. And no. there's no evidence to suggest that that's what's happening here. The assumption is we are living in a world free of discrimination and bias where people can just do what they want and follow their own curiosities and motivations and interests. We don't live in that world. But again, like if you want to say that that's what we're aspiring towards, then great. Say that <laughs> there, there's there's a way to do that. Well, this is just terrible. Sorry, I feel like I, I'm I'm. I've got a lot of feelings on this. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it's just it's it's a shocking degree of not grappling with the topic and just dismissing it and like riding a kind of anti woke wave to say whatever you want and hope that people will take it seriously. And I I, I don't know, but like <laughs> maybe we need to invite homel on to the i would love and, to and i honestly i would love to talk with any of these folks i have a feeling you know i mean i don't know it seems like a lot of people don't want to talk about this anymore but i i, I think i yeah. agree with you that it would yeah. be great to have a a little contest of ideas and i think ours would win I, I have a grab bag of other points that are made across several different papers so one of them is they attack some of the solutions that are brought up in relationship to this issue of racial inequality in academia. Now, I don't know to what extent these are completely linked to the 2020 paper that we started our conversation off on. I don't think some of them don't, I don't even think come up in the 2020 paper, but they kind of like go on the offensive and start like attacking a variety of things that are kind of in this pro diversity, pro DEI quote unquote woke, like idea space and psychological science. One of them is, um, and this one did come up in Stephen Roberts' paper, the 2020 paper. They uh, really make this case that whatever step we're going to take to remediate racial inequality in academia, something like positionality statements needs to include every possible identity all of the time in every paper. The one who's the absolute worst on this is Lee Jessam. He points in his paper, he points to a positionality statement he has on his website that he says, you should read this if you want my positionality statement. And he talks about him like playing certain sports and like he just like dumps all of this like life experience stuff that nobody would ever ask you for. If you like if, if he simply understood the arguments about positionality statements as being about like whatever's relevant to the topic that you're discussing. And you don't have to discuss every aspect of your identity, just the relevant components. All of them kind of make this case that like, if you don't talk about every aspect of your identity, including what kind of clothes you wear and whether you have your left-handed or right-handed or what color your hair is or your eye color or um, what, you know, what specific uh, genetic variants you have or whatever, then, you, then you're not really doing a, a, a positionality statement. And it's just so absurd that that is not the case. Again, it's the straw man argument all over again. It's just like create this absurd opponent and then make and then talk about how absurd they are. And you're you're not really talking about Stephen Roberts or anybody else who talks about positionality statements. You're just boxing shadows. Yeah, I mean, we did talk about the positionality statement stuff. I think there's room for good faith critique here. And I just was frustrated that I couldn't find it in these mm -hmm. responses to the Roberts paper. Yeah. 
Another uh, similar point that they make, and I quote this, I, I like label this as like the all lives matterification of <laughs> academic diversity discourse. So they're basically like, we can't focus on race because that's restricting the conversation. There is an endless universe of other possible aspects of diversity, and we need to balance every feature of diversity. Otherwise, we can't talk about it. And, and of course, Lee Jessam uses this like analogy to a mule versus a horse to kind of make this point that true diversity encompasses a bunch of stuff, not just race. And so if you want to diversify a race, you're actually not, you're actually not doing true diversity. And I just think it's so silly. It's just like, again... Pick out the things that dictate how much wealth you have and whether you get incarcerated and whether you are treated fairly in the legal in the criminal justice system, in the housing market and in the jobs market. And like, tell me those top five things that one of those things is going to be race. And then there's gender. And it's like the things we focus on. There's a reason why we focus on right. them, because they're linked to important, important life outcomes. And the thing is, like we talked about before, the, the multidimensional way in which diversity operates like in a general sense that's true and you know in this specific case the roberts and colleagues are focusing on race other papers can focus on other things and that is part of our general understanding of human nature and of how we do science like there's absolutely room for this i i said before you know i'm i'm a huge supporter and proponent of viewpoint diversity i think stephen roberts feels the same way like, I think he yeah. argues in favor of political diversity in social psychology. Mm -hmm. Like, he spoke about this, the idea that, you know, maybe there are uh, ways we can improve on political diversity in our field. The, the discussion and the focus on race here does not exclude that, nor does it exclude any of the other dimensions in which diversity operates. It's like, I'm sorry we can't study everything all of the time all at once. Instead, we, yes, have to like isolate a problem, identify it, talk about it, and then you move on. And that's part of a larger system of science that's evaluating all of these things and talking about all of these things. Anyway, as you can tell, we are not impressed with the, the litany of uh, critiques that are made at the Roberts paper, besides some of the ones that we have talked about ourselves, some things that could have been strengthened about the paper. And they tried to turn it into this larger like critique of scholars who care about racial inequality and are trying to do something about racial inequality as being driven by ideology and not real scientists. And they accuse the team that wrote that 2020 paper of being activists and not scientists. And then they are accusing by virtue of that many of the rest of us in the field who care about racial inequality want to use scientific tools to try to remedy the mistakes of the past and the inequality that has been perpetrated by psychology, um, try to try to fix those things as activists and non-scientists, which is just patently absurd. In the same way that like a person who dedicates their life to trying to stop cancer is not driven by ideology. They just have a goal. They have a pro-social goal that is like, the basis for why they want to do the research they do. And so somebody who wants to like remedy racism and, and fix racial inequality, that's like a thing that is driving a lot of scholars. I agree. And maybe you can call that ideological. You can have a anti-cancer ideology <laughs> and we can be all worried about the anti-cancer ideology that's taken over oncology. Yeah. And that's fine. You can do that. You sound like a crazy person to do that, so, but you can do that. I think among those of us who care about eradicating racism, 
there are people who are doing that work well and people who are not doing it well. Maybe people who are doing it awkwardly or maybe even creating, you know, yeah, further problems sure. or maybe people who are opportunists. And I think, you know, a, a proper critique needs to delineate those things, needs to say, we agree, first and foremost. And I've seen, you know, I, I, I've seen some heterodox scholars make this exact argument. Like, we let's start off with where we agree. Racism is bad. We should put effort into eradicating it. And also, you specifically might be doing a not so great job of that. And that, I think, is fair. Uh, it, it, it's It's not... Mm -hmm. necessarily a matter of ideology or maybe it is but like not one that clearly maps on to being against racism it's more like your worldview on what the best remedies are for social problems so after the after all the nonsense that occurred during this whole process of trying to get these commentaries published stephen roberts getting understandably frustrated with the whole situation and uh, ultimately withdrawing and publishing his uh, his his article plus a meta commentary on the whole thing on a sci archive which you know is free and accessible for everyone there was a lot of outrage and um, there were well there there was an open letter that was signed by thousands of people in our field, basically highlighting the, the problems here and briefly just basically saying this was an exercise in editorial incompetence and calling for Fiedler to be removed as editor, which he was like a matter of days later. I think it was like two or three days after this, this letter, APS removed him. And there was a uh, another letter actually signed also by a bunch of people. You know, th this second letter didn't necessarily defend Fiedler in terms of how he handled the editorial process. I think there were a few main points that they wanted to get across, such as there was not evidence of what they call blatant racism which he was accused of, and also a call for basically, uh, they, they wanted more editorial discretion and didn't necessarily think that this was grounds for him to be removed and at the very least wanted more of an investigative process, I guess. I actually, I don't even know if they call for any investigation. I think they just said that he has the right to defend himself before being removed. I think yeah. they do, yeah. Um, due process. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there, there's some interesting stuff in these letters to parse through. You know, I, I think it is understandable for anyone in our field to be upset as we are about the way that Stephen Roberts was treated and upset at Fiedler's handling of this whole situation. I think the accusations of blatant racism may be a little bit difficult to prove. I mean, we don't, we're not mind readers. We can't peer into Fiedler's mind and see what he was thinking or if he would have treated this the same way had Stephen Roberts been white instead of, you know, multiracial. Like, we don't, we don't know for sure. These are not falsifiable questions. And, and also like, 
it, it doesn't have to be also that he was mistreated for being black. It could also be that they opposed this ideological, quote unquote, move to do something about racism and address racial inequality in academia, and that that has a kind of racial undertone to it that and perpetuates racial inequality in academia, which arguably could be a contributor to maintaining and exacerbating racial inequality because they're saying, don't talk about it. And if you do talk about it, it's ideological. And so I can see the argument, but like, I agree with you. It is a hard thing to prove. There's like some kind of definitional problem here. Like, what do we mean by racism? Do we just mean like interpersonal racism of the kind of are these are are we claiming that these are the kinds of people who might use the N word in their spare time or might like be holding it against him for being black? There is this other read of like that's more consistent with racism as a systemic problem where when you're doing things that make races racial disparities worse or racial inequality harder to address that you're contributing to racism in some way. Listeners of the show, though, know that my preference is not to call people racist, but in, instead talk about like systems and things that are, you know, uh, making races, racial inequality worse or things that are making racial inequality better. Yeah. So in this scenario, I probably wouldn't call anybody specifically racist as an individual. Um, but I would say that these papers contribute to a uh, racially hostile environment. I, I suspect that if you were to show, if if we were to just uh, calculate the effect of this on scholars of color, on productivity, certainly of Stephen Roberts, of many other scholars of color who are witnessing this and vicariously experiencing what it's like to be a scholar of color who talks about racism in the field, there's probably a negative effect. There's a silencing negative effect on scholars of color who to cover these topics. And I bet that's there. I, there isn't a study. I can't back that up with a fact, but I would suspect that that is the case. That's interesting to draw the connection between these papers and what what could be a you know culture of self silencing or censorship. I mean, those are those are very bad things, and we we want to try to promote open discourse and dialogue about these important topics. Something that I agree this about the second letter was the immediate call to remove. I just feel like the better request is a thorough investigation should be done. And if wrongdoing was do was found, this person needs to be fired immediately. I feel like it should be an is if yeah. then clause instead of like a, a fire this person, because at the end of the day, like no investigation was done. I do. The, the problem I have yeah. with that line of reasoning, though, is that it calls into question whether we trust uh, Stephen Roberts account of the circumstances, because I think if you read the account and the emails, it is clear that something wrong happened. And I think a lot of people read the account and decided, yeah, this was mistreatment. He should be fired. Yeah. And I do think that's fine. I just prefer personally that that if I'm going to sign on to something, I would like it to follow the like procedure. That's very reasonable. And uh, just like anecdotally, I saw two people and there's probably more, but, you know, out of thousands, this, you know, again, just anecdotal. But a couple of people I saw who signed this letter calling for Fiedler to be removed were surprised at APS's actions that happened so quickly. Like, I guess they had expected uh, a, a, a more 
you know, thorough investigation rather than just kind of letting him go on the spot. You know, at some point it's like, well, okay, I mean, that that is what the open letter literally said, like, just get rid of this guy immediately. You know, I think in in hindsight, at least some people were like, well, maybe it would have been better to at least like have an investigation and speak with him for five minutes, you know, before deciding like. I mean, I think they probably did i don't i mean i we don't know a lot of that's not none of that investigation whatever happened is not public that's information true. as far as I we know. don't really know um and so like i do think it is a pretty <laughs> damn open and uh shut case like it's pretty clear assuming that steven roberts is not falsifying those emails which i 100 percent don't think that yeah no no one is no like one is suggesting that he falsified anything right but like assuming that all of those emails are correct and the timeline and everything that he laid out is correct, there was clearly malfeasance from Fiedler. And so like whether someone should be fired or not is really subject to like the whims of the people who are above. That's just how our corporate structures work. And I believe that the journals work oper- operate on those principles. It's just basically your boss decides whether you keep your job or not. Right. And like he clearly screwed up and it's a very high profile screw up and it was pretty egregious and I think like firing him makes a ton of sense. And it I don't think it even requires that much investigation. It's all out there. It's all clear as day, like what needs to be done. I just felt like let the journal make the decision. Now, if the journal had come back and said uh, he did nothing wrong, I'd, I'd feel pretty like what the what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Clearly, he did something wrong. Um, it seems like they did the right thing. I think like the fact that somebody signs or didn't sign is not a big deal. I think signing the counter letter is kind of silly. Uh, personally. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So in the counter letter, which, so according to the counter letter, I cannot verify this, but it says Fiedler was not given an opportunity to reply to the accusations at any stage that, that, that seems weird. If Mm -hmm. true, I would, you know, if, if I were in a position of leadership at APS, I would want to, I would want to reply even uh, something the, the counter letter does, I think, kind of downplay the bizarreness and what I what we're characterizing as mistreatments. Again, whether or not that's grounds for termination at any position is kind of a subjective thing, unless there's some, you know, clause in the contract that says, you know, thou shalt not uh, do X, Y and Z and then you do it. But, you know, to, to your point, like, OK, I think. What I would try to do is surmise, first off, whether this was an intentional abuse of power. And if that's the case, then I think it's a much stronger case for just removing the person. I think, you know, if it if it's a case where Fiedler like and I'm not saying that this is true, but if he generally thought that he wasn't doing anything wrong, then there is, I think, a compelling case to be made for this being a teachable moment. I, I I would I would hope this is where my optimistic side comes in. Like I would like to think that all of us who are well intentioned, who have a desire to be a better person, are you know motivated to move in that direction. Yeah, and to be better. Like I I I think I think sometimes people make mistakes, big mistakes, and don't necessarily deserve to be fired. You know, I saw some people in our field on Twitter being like, you know. 
people get fired unceremoniously from their jobs all the time and you know there's no due process there why should there be due process here and i i would like to live in a world where that doesn't happen in in any field i would like and this is one of the reasons why i like labor unions because i i like the idea that employees are treated fairly and not immediately fired uh, for a mistake unless you know like i said if it's in something like abuse of power then i think it's a much stronger case i agree with you to a large extent that like people should be allowed to make mistakes and then recover from them i think he can like there's nothing stopping him from he has a, a nice career behind him. oh right a, right uh, yeah i don't yeah he, he like he he's gonna be fine he didn't lose his job at the university no one actually lost a like a, a, a job that was feeding their families or anything at the end of the day they just like swapped him for a different editor which i think is fine like you make a big high profile prop like mistake sometimes you get fired from like a uh, elected job um for making a big high profile mistake and i think that's okay even if it was totally an accident even if like he really didn't think about it or whatever the fact is that like this was a really sensitive issue and high profile incidents that, you know, it makes sense that the journal would like want to set aside this person and be like, you know, you really should learn from this, but it's not necessary for us to keep you as an editor at our journal while you learn from this. Like we, there's a, there's a a universe of other people that could fill your role. And that's okay. Like if, if we want to encourage a positive learning process, like what is that, what do you think that looks like in a case like this? I mean, I think partly the reason why we, we've spent the time we're spending on this topic is because I think it is a learning thing for the whole field. I'm hoping that people learn from this incident and just think, think more critically whenever they put together a team of people who are going to comment, like review a commentary on a paper about racial right. inequality, like have a a, diff, a variety of opinions that you're bringing on board to review that paper and try to be honest with the people that you're engaging with in the review process. Like all of these things are good things for everybody to learn. It doesn't have to be him. Like there's, there's a larger learning process here that's happening in the field. And I think like we're trying to engage with it. But, you know, sometimes you do a thing, you make a mistake and like you're not in the same position because you made that mistake. That's that's OK. Like I, I guess I would want to change Fiedler's mind about like the way to be a good because he might get an editor position at another journal or maybe he is already I actually don't know maybe you know he already is an editor at another journal and if if he walks away from this feeling like this was an angry twitter mob and there was a miscarriage of justice and now I'm here like maybe there's no change and this is you know I guess something that I see mirrored in a lot of other aspects of our culture where there is, you know, clearly evidence of wrongdoing, but then the response is kind of like two wrongs, which don't make a right. And I'm, but I'm not sure either. That's the thing. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I think you're right. What you just said is, is a very good insight. Like we're still trying to figure this out and we're, we're learning too. So like, that's, that's what I want to know is, you know, what, what is the right response? Yeah. I, I, I would have trouble characterizing him being fired as a wrong. Like it just seems like uh, I understand the point you're making that like maybe there's a good opportunity here for him as an individual to learn, but like it's not 
the responsibility of the journal or anybody else in that guy's life to like get him on the right side of this issue. Whose responsibility is it then? At the end of the day, like every individual is responsible for their own actions and behavior, right? And and we can f- try to facilitate, but it's not our job to like do that for him, right? He needs to figure that out. He needs to. I, like, I think it's all of our jobs. If he's driven to call to like blame all this on the woke mob on Twitter, that's just him descending further down a bad worldview that maybe even contributed to this problem in the first place. Like it's not on us to fix that for him. Like, and it's certainly not on us to fix that for him when there's a lot of people who are negatively affected. Like he's going to, he's going to review the next set of articles and he might make more mistakes. And now we're creating more damage just so we can try to like fix this one guy like that. I just don't, the, the cost to benefit ratio there just doesn't seem right. I mean, I think this is how polarization operates like just like you're you know focused in your work on inequality um you know i'm i'm very concerned about polarization and i i am concerned that when we say things like it's not our job to fix this we are maybe exacerbating the the existing issues and tensions I, I would like to think that it's it's all of our jobs to do that. We are trying to fix the broader problem with peer in peer review process. Like the thing that we've done in our show today is try to articulate what could have been done better and how we can fix this moving forward right. as part of our conversation. But that doesn't necessarily mean fixing an individual. That's about a process. And I think the process needs to be fixed. The field needs to address these problems. But there are thousands of other individuals who could take up that position and they would learn from the previous mistakes that were made and it doesn't have to be him sure yeah no i agree yeah i'm not saying i think he should still be the editor right i i'm i i I, i'm not sure what what the right answer is but i think to your point about you know fixing peer review like i think this is a good in a sense um a vindication for sci archive and preprint servers in general. For sure. I mean, that's that's how that that's how Stephen Roberts was able to communicate about this to a broad audience, including us. And alongside the benefit of preprint servers, we also have the benefit of social media to facilitate discussion about this on at scale. And those are important tools for us in our in our quest for social change. Agreed. And you know, it's not to say that everybody did this right. I mean, shoot, we were talking about people who have been harassing Stephen Roberts over email. If anybody else involved in this situation, even the people I think did wrong in this situation, got harassing emails as a consequence of this whole thing, that's also bad. Hot take again, we oppose harassment. <laughs> yeah, no matter what. <laughs> I think it's that's an important thing to just like make clear. I don't know. I, you know, there's there's a conversation and we can talk about this in another episode. But uh, left wing authoritarianism, it's like, sure. yeah, like there, yeah. there are people on my side of the political aisle who think that we should use the same awful tools that are used against, you know, scholars of color and women and yeah, um, by by bad actors on the political right. Whenever we we, we should be able to use those tools, too. And I just like, no. Like, I don't think so. Yeah. 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 Totally. Anyway, hope people enjoyed our thoughts on the topic. Uh, again, we wish we could have had uh, Stephen on, but we can 100% appreciate 
where he's coming from and his uh, situation and, and desire to not necessarily be at the center of this conversation anymore. So we're glad we could talk about it a little bit because we do think it's a, just an important thing. Yeah. And, you know, just to reiterate what we were saying before, just an invitation to anyone else who wants to talk about this, feel free to reach out to us. And if any of the folks who wrote any of those commentaries want to join us on the podcast, we would enjoy the opportunity to have a, a, a debate or, you know, an open discussion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, if, if you feel that we have misrepresented your views or what you said in any way, we'll happily listen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, can't promise that you'll be able to change our minds, but I think, you know, it is, it is important to keep those lines of dialogue open anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the right to reply uh, approach that. What is it called? Decoding, Decoding the, gurus. the gurus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The right to reply is a, a very good thing. I agree. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with someone you know. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at a bit more pod or send an email to more complicated pod at gmail.com. 